CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So very happy to have you with us on this uh, Monday as we start a new week on Political Rewind. Um, before I introduce the panel, just a few comments uh, about the unusual circumstances in which so many of us find ourselves right now. I think uh, many, if not most of us, are waking up this morning to extraordinarily changed and perhaps unprecedented circumstances. It, it occurs to me we're using the word unprecedented a lot these days. Uh, and uh, for many of you, that is certainly true as you are being asked to stay at home, work from your homes, asked not to socialize, to do as much as you can to isolate yourselves. And everyone is going to have a story to tell about how the coronavirus has made an impact on the way in which we all live our daily lives. So here's the story about us at Political Rewind and GPB. Last week, Taya Ryan, our CEO, uh, sent out a directive uh, asking that all employees, except for essential personnel, uh, should in fact work from their homes, uh, and they are mostly doing that today. Uh, I am considered essential personnel, but uh, because I was uh, on the road last week, I was off for a few days when I went out to Arizona for a family reunion and was on an airplane, uh, Taya uh, said that she didn't want people who'd been flying to be in the offices either. That said, I am hosting Political Rewind from my 23-year-old daughter's bedroom at our home in Crater Decatur uh, today, and uh, we're going to see if we can make this work. Our studio today is empty. Our panelists are joining us by telephone because we have also been told we cannot have people in the building to be panelists on the show. All of that means that uh, we're going to see how this works. Uh, you'll be part of our experiment today. Uh, doing it by telephone means that the audio quality won't be what you're used to. And uh, as a host of the show, I'm going to do my best not to step on people as they try to talk, interrupt them, because we don't have any visual cues. But the fact of the matter is we think that it's important that you be able to continue uh, to hear Political Rewind at a time when it's really important. Uh, uh, Tom Faust points out that the building where he and Sam are, Sam Burmas Dawes are, uh, because they're considered essential personnel, is virtually empty there. Sam is there. Uh, Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer, is there. Jake, Adam, Dana, Dennis, Patrick, engineers on the staff there are uh, working in the building. Terry's in transmissions, but for the most part, it's pretty dark at Georgia Public Broadcasting. So that's what we're dealing with uh, today. And you know what? If, if you want to share with us what you are going through, I would love to hear from you. You're more than welcome to use my email. You can uh, send me a note at bnigut at gpb.org. Uh, tweet us if you'd like to. However you want to get to us, we'd be more than happy to hear what you're dealing with as we uh, confront, again, this unprecedented situation. Uh, you can, in fact, the Facebook Live feed is up. Um, there's nothing to watch, but you can listen to the show on Facebook Live, and we hope you will, in fact, do that. 
Uh, all right, let's get to our panel. Uh, everybody's un- under, living under extraordinary circumstances, including Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read his column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Jim, you're uh, staying at home through this as well, right? Right, right. We're Actually, we're responding quite, quite, quite a bit like GPB. Uh, we've emptied our newsroom, and everybody's been ordered to work from home who can. And that way, if you know, if if you get if you get one infected person, uh, the other, uh, the rest of the staff isn't sidelined. So it's a, it's 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 kind of it's a it's a necessary precaution if if you're you're in a business that has to has to operate in this climate. That's exactly uh, got, right. Tia Mitchell, your colleague. Oh, go ahead, Jim. Oh no 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 no. Go ahead, please. You you were about to 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 to, to uh, introduce Tia, the great Tia Mitchell. <laughs> I do want to introduce Tia Mitchell. She's the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Tia, right now you are trying to uh, stay as cloistered as possible, but as we'll discuss in a little while, the Senate has a big vote coming up that you may be heading over to the Capitol for. How are you doing, Tia? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, it's interesting because Washington has shut down immensely, like many other places around the country, yet Congress is still in session. The Senate is in session this week, and they're scheduled to take votes this afternoon or this evening. So I'm at home working from home now, but I may be venturing down to the Capitol because the Senate will be taking votes. Practice social distancing when you're down there, Tia. Will do. (laughs) Um, we should point out, by the way, as long as we're mentioning that, the Senate was supposed to be in recess this week, but after the House passed the package that we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, told his members to stay in town so they could uh, act on it as well, right? Right. So, you know, there was a lot of back and forth between Nancy Pelosi and the White House, mainly Treasury Secretary um, Mnuchin. And so the Senate went home for the weekend as planned, which, you know, Senate Democrats had said that wasn't a smart idea, but they did go home for the weekend. But again, they were scheduled to come back. The House right now is not scheduled to come back this week. So, um, yeah, unusual times for sure. Okay. Also joining us today, the former now mayor, Ted Terry, um, of Clarkston, Georgia. Uh, Ted, are you uh, are you at home as well? Absolutely, Bill. Uh, over here in Clarkston, in DeKalb County, and where we were following all of the uh, the protocols and the recommendations um, out of the DeKalb County Board of Health. Uh, and yes, everything is going good here. Thanks for asking. Okay, um, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I want to just uh, update everybody on a few of the new, of the headlines and then get you all to weigh in on them. Um, so uh, we, as of yesterday, I think late morning, we now have 99 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the state of Georgia. We have had, unfortunately, one person die. Uh, we have most of the cases are in Metro Atlanta. The most mostly Fulton County has 20. Cobb, Cobb, Cobb has a 19. DeKalb has 10. But this and so do other Metro counties have some. But now suddenly we're seeing them in Doherty, in Floyd County, in Coweta, in Clark County, Lowndes, Lee, Gordon, uh, Charlton, 
Henry Polk. So, Jim Galloway, uh, the first thing we should talk about is the fact that this uh, virus is spreading across the state. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Andy Miller, who runs uh, Georgia Health News, he's been on on the show quite a few times. Uh, he's uh, he yep. he reported that as of as uh, just concurrent with with uh, Governor uh, Brian Kemp's de- declaration of that he intended to seek a, a, st- a state of uh, emergency powers on Saturday. Phoebe Putney Hospital down in uh, Metro Atlanta, uh, I mean Metro uh, in Albany, uh, found that it had seven. Uh, corona, coronavirus patients in its mm-hmm. midst. So you and and, and immediately um, you had you had thirty staffers sidelined. Um, we also have some figures on uh, what age groups we're talking about. Uh, the people forty seven percent of the cases in Georgia are people who are sixty years old or older. Forty five percent are people eighteen to fifty nine. Uh, women. Uh, 53% of the cases are women, 47% are men. So we're seeing how this virus is starting to move across the state. Um, We should also point out that uh, CDC has now recommended banning gatherings of more than 50 people for at least eight weeks, and that's going to have an impact in metro Atlanta. Uh, Companies like Chick-fil-A, have changed how they do business. Chick-fil-A has suspended dine-in services at all of its locations. They're going to keep their drive-through lanes open, and in some cases, people will be able to walk into some of the restaurants, apparently, to make an order and leave immediately. Some of the Starbucks are pulling up their chairs and letting people order but not letting them sit. We now have more than 1.2 million of the students, the 1.8 million students in the state, uh, out of school right now. And uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has declared a state of emergency in the city of Atlanta, uh, which will give her the power to ban gatherings of more than 250 people. But of course, now the CDC is recommending uh, no gatherings of more than 50 people. So just a, a few of the uh, headlines that are making the news today. All right, let's talk about how government is responding statewide and then nationally and go from there. Uh, Jim, on Friday, of course, I've been out of town. Oh, by the way, I should thank you, Jim Galloway, your colleague, Greg Bluestein, your boss, Kevin Riley, for the wonderful job. I'm so grateful to you all for the way you picked up and made it clear that this show goes on just what fine when I'm not even there. So before I say anything else, thank you for that. But okay, so oh, late we last week we the governor declared a okay, okay. So the governor declared a state of emergency, and uh, to to be able to take on broad new authorities to deal with a pandemic. Um, again, we use the word unprecedented. It a public health emergency, the first time in state history a governor has issued this type of declaration, and now it's up to the legislature to approve that declaration and give him the powers. What is the governor looking to do with this power, Jim Galloway? Well, well, first of all, it, it, it will make him the most powerful governor in Georgia history. I mean, it, it, it conceivably, you know, it, it gives him the, the ability to suspend certain state laws, uh, take control of, of uh, all sorts of uh, employee pills, p- pools, restrict travel, 
uh, limit public gatherings. Uh, specifically, what the, gov- the, the, the right now what the governor's staff are, are talking about is it would it would allow them to, to do things like accept uh, 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 allow nurses who who have been licensed in other states to work in Georgia immediately. It would allow them to kind of extend uh, trucking uh, trucking uh, tr- truckers uh, driving hours. Uh, so they can get supplies to where they need need to be, uh, uh, those kind of minor things. Uh, as as of this moment, uh, the governor the governor's intention to allow local governments and local school boards to make uh, the calls on what is closed and what is not. He's he's going to leave that with them, but he could step in at any point. Uh, he also wants to call up as many as 2,000, or at least the power to call up as many as two thousand uh, National Guard troops from the state to uh, uh, get them to active duty if they're needed. Um, right. Now, now if, know, if hey, I could... If Ted, I could, let me... If I, yeah, go ahead. If I could ju- just... W- one more thing. Uh, if I could... Uh, the uh, Under state law, when, when the governor declares an emergency, there's a reason that he did this on Saturday. He, he kind of sent the signal that he was going to do it on Friday, but he didn't actually do it until Saturday. Because under state law, uh, upon making that declaration... Uh, the the legislature needs to convene in special session within two days to ratify the decision. Yeah. Hence the fact that they came in at eight. The House came in at eight o'clock this morning to uh, vote for the rules for the special session, which by law, I believe, has to be limited to no more than two days. And although they can deviate from it, uh, usually the call, they limit any activity to the to the call for the session itself. Right. Right. So, Jim, I have a question. Why does the legislature have to convene a special session when the regular session is technically still valid? Couldn't they just call lawmakers back and go back into their session and introduce some emergency legislation? I don't get why there's a special session in the middle of a regular session. I would get, I mean, that's a really good question. Jim, here's my speculation. You weigh in. They don't want to burn regular session days. By law, of course, they're limited to 40 days in their routine regular session. If they use today and tomorrow, if they need tomorrow, as regular session days, they lose two days from the legislative calendar. So I'm assuming it's a little trick, Jim, to avoid uh, having to burn calendar days. Well, it's, it's it's more than a trick, uh, and and you you touched on it. Uh, well, just, I don't mean it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean well, that. No, no, in I mean, it's, it's not. A, yeah, yeah. It, I'm, I, and and I'm not taking it that way. Uh, when the when the governor calls a special session, he lists exactly what can be considered in that uh, in that in that session. Yes. For instance, when yes. he calls a redistricting session, only redistricting can be can be addressed there. So what we've got is. Uh, so what this does is it narrows the focus of, that, of, of the issues that lawmakers can address. If it were done during a regular session, they would be, there would be all sorts of opportunities to tack all sorts of, yeah. uh, of, okay. of, of additional requirements to something that's very much needed. All right. Good point. Hey, Ted, I want to get you in on this. And, and then I want to talk about the federal, uh, where we stand with the feds right now. Ted, the governor made it clear last week that he was going to leave it up to local school districts, local municipalities, to decide whether they felt they should close or not. Now, I understand that quite often Republicans uh, really feel uncomfortable 
uh, trying to dictate to local communities what they can or cannot do. But how do you react to the fact that either you're going to, if it's not a statewide ban, don't you run some risks that uh, you're going to that the virus could spread uh, from school districts that are staying open to other places? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the the concern probably a few days ago for leaving it up to local control may have made sense at the time. But now that we are in this actual state of emergency, that we are you know, amping up uh, even more social distancing, you know, probably in, in hindsight today actually would make sense to have it be uniform across the state. Um, I, I think you're seeing a, a little bit different implementation depending on what school district you're talking about. You know, I'm familiar that a lot of the school districts are providing uh, meals uh, at many of their mm-hmm. uh, locations. However, getting to those schools uh, isn't you know the accessible for every student. And so some bus drivers are staying employed; they're still being paid um, while delivering meals to certain sites out in the community. Um, but no, absolutely, I think at this point it's, it's clear that if we're in the state of emergency, um, that we should have some uniformity across the state in terms of the social distancing rules. Uh, and then just one, one other thing about the special session bill, um, it, it is, you know, important to note that, you know, and and Jim pointed it out in the uh, the jolt this morning, uh, that uh, 20 state legislators, um, Democrats have suggested and, and said that we should vote to expand Medicaid. Um, what a great opportunity for the governor to try out something uh, and, you know, see it have be a, a huge benefit, especially at this time of the most uh, vulnerable in our community, whether they're age demographic vulnerable or they're uh, economically uh, and privileged vulnerable, they can't afford to even go get that um, that medical care they might need for fear of having to pay a really big bill. All right. Uh, thank you for that. I think, uh, Tia, so the state of Georgia is moving forward uh, fairly aggressively. Kemp has tried to do that from the start, I think it's fair to say. There, there are some issues that people have raised, and I know that on the show on Friday, uh, Cody Hall, his uh, press secretary, was pressed pretty hard by, I think, you, among other people, Galloway, about uh, giving us more data. Uh, but they've moved pretty aggressively. And Tia, now you've got, as we talked about earlier, the, the, the Senate will take up the bill that the House passed late last week. What, in the general and broad terms, does that bill give the federal government the power to do? So this bill is the first of what we think will be two or more stimulus bills. So the first bill that was passed a week or so ago was the actual empowering health, public health organizations and hospitals to deal with the actual virus and its spread. So that's already passed. That's become law. That's the $8.3 billion funding. Now we're talking about stimulus mm-hmm. to help families and businesses that are being affected by, you know, the closures and school being out and things like that. So this bill that the House has passed and now the Senate will consider does things like uh, require paid sick leave, um, expands uh, programs to make sure people can get food. It ensures that if people need coronavirus testing, that it will be free um, for them. And, and Or if they have insurance, the insurance won't charge them for it. So it's a lot of, right now, this current bill is a lot of kind of things to help, if you will, regular folks. Um, The next bill down the line, we expect, will be more 
you know, those bailouts for the airline industry and, and, and possibly tax cuts. This one is a lot more measured in, like, what do people need right now as they're, you know, facing quarantine, facing being homebound, facing schools being closed. Um, Tia, you filed a, a pretty interesting story that I want to talk just a little bit about. Uh, when the vote came up in the House, it was largely a bipartisan measure. There were 40 Republicans who voted against this, and two of them were Jody Heiss of Monroe and Barry Loudermilk of Cassville. I think that may have caught some people off guard. You talked to both of them. Why did they choose to vote against uh, this uh, largely bipartisan measure? What did they tell you? Yeah, and so um, I reached out to both of them after the vote because I saw, you know, number one, it was very lopsided. Even people like, you know, Doug Collins, who was coming off of quarantine himself, voted for the bill. And um, it was very bipartisan. And so those 40 Republicans, even the phrase 40 Republicans was trending on social media as people, you know, highlighted and called out what they felt was, you know, these 40 members that were standing in the way of stimulus for coronavirus. But when I reached out to them, they both emailed me statements and said it was more of a philosophical problem with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi because she was negotiating directly with the White House, directly with the Treasury Secretary, directly, you know, even President Trump supported the bill. But what those GOP members, and quite frankly, most of the rank-and-file Democrats, just rank-and-file members, period, were mostly left in the dark. That vote happened around midnight, early Saturday morning, and there was very little notice. The bill text was only revealed, you know, maybe an hour or so before the vote. So they said, you know, they didn't have time to ask questions. There were too many unanswered questions, and that's why they voted no not because they don't want stimulus for families and businesses. And, and yet, Ted, they're on the record now as having voted against this measure. Um, you know, they're both living in very, well, Barry Laudermilk is moving on after this session, but uh, but it'll be interesting to see how their constituents react. I would su- suspect that Jody Heiss's people are not going to stray too far from his camp over something like this. Yeah, well, you know, there's this kind of reminds me also uh, a similar situation of when, you know, there's disaster relief funding and there's always, you know, some very conservative lawmakers who just, you know, at their core principle, they just don't believe that government should uh, be involved in these things or they just don't like the price tag. Um, but, you know, this is uh, this is not a time for politics. It's a time for, you know, responding to the public health emergency that the that our you know the republican governor has called and so to me I, I, it doesn't seem like any sort of um excuse is is valid enough it sort of ultimately rises to a political argument when what we're talking about that was introduced by house speaker pelosi is meant to address you know the crisis that we're right in the midst of hey jim why don't you jump in yeah, yeah, and and this touches on this. This gets to 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 something that I addressed in a, in a Sunday column that you've got some some yep. uh, really interesting Quinnipiac 
polling showed that I think maybe 68% of, of Democrats thought the coronavirus situation was uh, very or somewhat concerning, but, but only 35% of Republicans did. Uh, you know, it's, it's the, you know, it's, we, we, we live in two, two separate uh, information systems. And uh, up until very recently, the, the Fox News bubble has been downplaying this, this thing along with, with President Trump. Uh, I've got a. I'm, I'm looking at a, a an email that one of one of uh, my followers sent me uh, just about 15 minutes ago. She she writes, "I am angry, frustrated, and sadly, perhaps not completely surprised at the failure of churches, hospital, local officials, and public schools in rural Washington County to be proactive. The virus is surely there, just not confirmed yet. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's." Uh, it, we may pay a price for for uh, kind of not recognizing the seriousness of this uh, uh, immediately. Yeah, you know, Tio, uh, to pick up on what Jim said, it is interesting that as, as recently as just this weekend, when it was really beginning to sink in across the country, that this thing was serious, that people were going to have to take drastic steps to protect themselves, their neighbors, their families. You had Devin Nunes on one of the Fox channels telling people, get out, don't sit around your house. You've got to get out and patronize restaurants and bars. And uh, as Jim points out, it's a very counter, a, a contradictory message that uh, it strikes me at this point needs to be cleared up. I feel like there has been a shift over this weekend. I do want to clarify, both Representative mm -hmm. Heist and Representative Loudermilk are both running for re-election. Um, I think you had him mixed up with Representative Graves. But, um, oh, you're right. I apologize. I, uh, Congressman Laudermilk, I didn't mean to retire you too soon. <laughs> but, um, but to your point, back to your point, which is a good one, Like I feel like even at the beginning of the weekend towards the end of the weekend, there was that shift where people started you know, calling out you know, friends and folks, they say, folks that they're seeing out saying, hey, even if you're healthy and you feel good, this social distancing is not just for your own health. It's to prevent you from possibly catching it from someone else healthy and passing it on to someone who could have the more severe symptoms or the more severe effects. And I think the more that that message began to spread, even as you mentioned when Representative Nunez, uh, Nunes, um, said that, people said, no, that's not what we should do because that could put other people at risk. This is about flattening the curve, as everyone has been saying. And I think that started to catch on as well as, as you've noticed, or, you know, the CDC and uh, Mayor Bottoms and the governor is starting to crack down, even here in D.C., you know, they forced the bars to close. They forced the restaurants to change how they serve people because it's really starting to sink in we've got to hunker down. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Glad to have you back with us for Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, Ted Terry, Tia Mitchell all on the show today. Once again, if you're joining us a little late, 
Things have changed at Political Rewind and at Georgia Public Broadcasting. Uh, we're, uh, no one is allowed in the building, in the studios, except for essential workers. So all week this week, and who knows how long after that, our panelists will be joining us by telephone. And uh, because I've been traveling on airplanes uh, this past week, uh, I've been asked to stay out of the building as well. So I am uh, hosting today's show from my daughter Emma's bedroom. Uh, her former bedroom uh, in uh, in Greater Decatur. Uh, Tom Faust during the break pointed out to me that when the bell, the dot, when the uh, starting bell, opening bell happened this morning on the stock New York Stock Exchange, uh, the Dow dropped 2,250 points, 10 percent. It triggered an automatic halt to trading for the time being. And of course, one of the things that's uh, troublesome about that is that uh, the Fed's decision to lower the interest rates to zero, uh, the uh, 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 commitment to injecting uh, federal money into the mortgage market and others so far has had not impressed the uh, uh, people in the uh, uh, stock market at this point. Uh, Jim Galloway, let's, let's talk about uh, Brad Raffensperger's decision to delay the primary from March 24th to May 19th. One of the things that I, I want to talk to you about what the implications of that are, it is interesting to me that considering the partisan atmosphere in which we live as a state and as a nation, uh, this seems to have drawn fairly uh, strong bipartisan support, including the Democratic State Party Chair, Nakima Williams, agreeing to have a press conference with Raffensberger to talk about uh, what this all means. Yeah, that's that's the that, that's that's going to be held later today, uh, uh, and 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 uh, Raffensperger's staff uh, told me quite bluntly that they, I mean, they 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 had to, they had to bring in Georgia Democrats into this decision. Uh, it was just given given that there's there's really no Republican primary. I mean, Trump is on the ballot, but he's the only name on the ballot on the Republican side. It, it was something that you had to do because there would have been an eruption had they had they had they had they made the wrong move it, it, but it was odd you know in the press release that was announced and uh, announcing this it was it was odd to see Nikema Williams's name and and a few quotes from her in there endorsing this move yeah um so I want to I'll give everybody a chance to weigh in but I'll start with you as long as you've got the ball are there what do you see as the implications of this in terms of Oh, but before I even ask you that, you had an update in the jolt this morning about this, which is that now the Secretary of State's office is, says they're going to try to protect people maybe 65 and older, maybe 60 and older, by uh, sending them uh, uh, voter uh, uh, ballots that they can submit by mail. That's a big uh, development. Yeah, ballot applications. Yeah, right. Uh, they'll be sending out ballot a applications. Just given given that it's a, a primary, you know, people have to make a choice between Republican and, and, and GOP ballots. Uh, right, and and right. they do, they are that. emphasizing that if you've already cast a vote in the presidential primary, it's still going to be counted on on May nineteenth. What's interesting, though, is you know, right uh, last week you could cast a ballot in the Democratic presidential primary, and then come May 19th, you could go ahead and pick up a Republican ballot if you wanted to, you, you, for swing voters. Uh, you know, you, you, but but with that, with shifting, by shifting the presidential primary to, uh, to May 19th with the, with, the rest, with the other primaries, now 
uh, if you, you can't do that, because so the 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 presidential primaries will have fewer swing voters in there, which I, I don't know what the impact of that is. It will probably be neg, neg, negligible, given the fact that even even in the uh, the democratic on the democratic side, kind of this race probably is 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 over. Uh, but but you know it's interesting, Ted. Uh, just to be clear, that we're going to vote for all of our races on May nineteenth. We have heard a couple of Democratic state Democratic leaders say they think this is an opportunity to increase voter turnout. And even though by then the race may be uh, sad for you as a Bernie Sanders supporter, kind of over with. Uh, the fact is that you want to pump up the vote as much as possible and demonstrate that Democrats really do have an opportunity to uh, win the state in November, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, there were a lot of folks here in Georgia that were hoping that we would have a, a little bit greater role in deciding who the next uh, Democratic nominee would be. Um, it looks like we might be a, a little bit late to that, uh, but you never know. Um, we can see how the, these next races go. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the big thing about um, this this, this, camp, this uh, election not being canceled, uh, so the primary is being postponed, uh, is to give everyone a chance to let their voices be heard. Um, and our chair, Akima Williams, has been, you know, really uh, capable in, um, in, in her handling of the situation, working, you know, across party lines with Secretary of State. Obviously, we have a lot of uh, partisan disagreements with Secretary of State, uh, but at this you know, this uh, decision, I think, is the right one. Um, and also, you know, we, we select our delegates based on how the, the presidential vote goes. And so for Georgia, just have a good, uh, you know, strong delegate process, uh, you know, we need to have an election. We need to have results. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to do that. Uh, Tia, uh, are you still a Georgia voter? No, um, as soon as I put in a change of address form, uh, I was notified that Deca- by DeKalb County that I was being kicked off the voter rolls. They did it quickly. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess the reason I wanted to start with that is to ask you, there's been so much focus on, uh, on, on whether or not uh, states like Georgia are accurately counting the vote, whether they're suppressing the vote. Uh, that it, it, any change like this is bound to create certain concerns. And yet, as I said, you've got the chair of the state party, Democratic state party, Lauren Growargo, who's been associated with Stacey Abrams and all of her organizations and was her campaign manager, said uh, positively that this will increase turnout. It's interesting that it, it feels like everybody's trying to work together to uh, make this a success, not to sow further doubt about the legitimacy of, of making a move like this. Yeah, I think that, you know, again, these public officials, the folks in charge, realize we are truly in, you know, uncharted territory. And, you know, we want to keep people safe. And you want to, and right now that is requiring uh, folks you know, kind of don't, that we don't have these large public gatherings. So elections right now is is not the best idea, according to public health officials. And how do you handle that? Of course, there are some roadblocks. You know, people are asking if you've already voted in the presidential election, but you need to vote in all the other primary races on the ballot. How are they going to handle that? Is it two separate ballots? Well, then that's cumbersome, you know, so 
And even though we know it's by machine, but even still, if it's two separate processes because they are technically keeping the election separate, that could, you know, confuse people. And these are all things that are not easy choices to make. But again, I think it shows with uh, Senator Williams standing beside Secretary Raffensperger, particularly knowing the history of how the Democratic Party has been pretty critical of the Secretary of State's office in general. I think it speaks to the fact that these, you know, these top lawmakers in Georgia and beyond really are trying to work together, um, you know, as we combat this pandemic of a scale that, you know, we as a country have not faced in a really long time. Um, Jim, we do have like 279,000 people who early voted before, by the way, we should point out the Secretary of State's office ended early voting a week early, again, out of out of an abundance of caution about people uh, being uh, possibly passing the virus on. Uh, so I it will be interesting to hear the Secretary of State explain how those people who have already voted in a presidential primary, how those votes are going to be segregated for, segregated from the ballots they cast for other races. What I'm, what I'm, Tia says, right. I'm sure. What, what I'm told is, is, is that, that will be done by coding. By, by by coding, there will there will okay. be coding that will that will that will load up, uh, kind of the list of the list of people who have already cast ballots, and and those if you've already cast a, a ballot in the Democratic presidential primary, uh, or the Republican one for that matter, you will just be you, all you will see is the normal state ballot, the the regular May nineteenth state by, ballot. Uh, I should, okay. uh, I um, should uh, Bill. While, while, I've, while, I've, while I've got the floor here, uh, I'm getting a note that says there's a, actually an interesting disagreement right now going on in the legislature uh, uh, that the House wants this emergency declaration to expire in 30 days, while the Senate uh, apparently is inclined to uh, leave it open, uh, uh, more open than that. So that's that's uh, that's that's an interesting that this this that debate is actually happening right now. Well, you know what else? Here's what's really interesting about that, uh, I think, Ted, is that uh, it's not surprising that if there is going to be disagreement about that, it would be in the House where Speaker David Ralston and Republican leaders who control the House have been at odds with the governor uh, pretty extensively in the past months and, and have made it clear that they have been worried since this uh, state of emergency was declared that they want the governor to be sure he exercises caution. It's not surprising they might take issue and have an expiration date, while the Senate, which is much more supportive generally of the governor, uh, is willing to go along without an, an, an expiration date, Ted. Well, look, uh, you know, just speaking as a Democrat, uh, if uh, Brian Kemp uses his power um, under this emergency declaration to expand Medicaid, um, then I would support the session being open a little bit longer than 30 <laughs> days. All right. <laughs> Um, all right, let's do this. Uh, let's take our final break of the show. When we come back, politics does continue on, uh, even as we're dealing with coronavirus, although it continues on in a transformed way, as much of our the rest of our lives do. So let's get our break out of the way and come back and talk a bit about the debate last night and how we're dealing with heading into primaries in four important states tomorrow. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thank you. 
We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, again, for those of you who joined us late, uh, circumstances have changed. Political Rewind sounds different these days, or starting today, and will for the time being, uh, because we've uh, pretty much shut down GPB's building and only allowed essential personnel in, which means our panelists are joining us sort of throughout this week by telephone. And uh, we know the quality isn't what you expect but we think the show means a lot to you, and so we're certainly not going to uh, do anything to uh, change it at this point. Uh, Ted Terry is with us, Tia Mitchell in Washington, Jim Galloway uh, out there in uh, Cobb County, all part of today's show. Um, and I also want to remind you, since it's the beginning of a new week, that we are on every day. You know that, Monday through Friday. And we're on at 9 and 2. The 9 a.m. show is our live broadcast. And the 2 o'clock show is an encore presentation. And it gives you the chance to hear us later in the day if you miss us. Just want to always clarify that situation. Um, all right, let's, let's talk. Jim, I want to – well, Tia, let me come to you on this first, if I may. So uh-huh. we, we've had an – it's interesting, first of all, Despite the fact Louisiana and Georgia have now moved their primary dates, and yet tomorrow, Florida, Illinois, Arizona, and Ohio, important states, are all going ahead with their primaries uh, because they, uh, as the governor of Florida said, if we voted during the Civil War, we can certainly vote during a virus. It's going to be interesting, Tia, to see what kind of turnout they get at these elections. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. Um, and these, as you know, these were elections that were further along than Georgia. So um, I think mm-hmm. that was part of the calculus. Uh, Florida does have very robust early voting as well. But, you know, still a lot of people show up on Election Day. I would guess that this um, has a negative effect on turnout, which um, – you know, we already know that Bernie Sanders, he wasn't expected to just do great in Florida or any of these other states already. But for him to do well at all, he relies on, you know, young voters, youthful voters. And I think this is probably worse for him than it is on Joe Biden, because those young voters, it's already harder to turn them out. And right now they're distracted. Those college students are, are home or they're not in class or they're on spring break and and now they're, you know, thinking about whether they show up to stand in line at the polls, even knowing that we're all supposed to be socially distancing. So I do think there's going to be um, negative effects on turnout today, but we'll definitely see. Jim, one of the uh, other concerns they have in those states is that uh, poll workers themselves, who tend to be much older, there are an awful lot of poll workers that are 70 years old and, and beyond. And the question is whether that we, we understand that any number of them, certainly in Florida, are already saying that they shouldn't be counted on. So it's going to be interesting to see whether there's turnout and then whether there are enough poll workers to handle the people who do show up in those states. And it will right, help right. us understand p- perhaps the wisdom of Raffensperger's decision. Right, and and it's you know it's 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 going to fundament, fundamentally change uh, politicking, not just on the, in the presidential campaign, but in the uh, in the in 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 every race. Uh, for instance, and, and and I do think number one, I do think it gives Biden 
just who has become kind of uh, the, the the safe choice for for Democrats uh, in a pandemic. I think that 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 kind of that appeal is 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 uh, carries more weight, not less. But uh, but I think what you're going going to see is a lot of uh, a, a lot of the a lot of advantage accrue to to uh, to candidates who have the money to go up on mass media on the internet on TV to carry their message that way rather than uh, rather than in, uh, person to person. Uh, for instance, I think it gives a huge boost to Kelly Loeffler in the in the U.S. Senate race over someone say like Doug Collins. Uh, 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 Raphael Warnock, uh, Warnock, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, probably has an advantage, uh, 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 an advantage among Democrats now, over over say say uh, uh, Ed Tarver and Matt Lieberman, because they have the resources, the financial resources, because, to do because what they you're have the, they, about. they 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 have the the resources. And the network uh, that you know, it, if you're running an insurgent campaign of any kind, it, a, a great deal of uh, you, you need to have a lot of personal contact, and I think that's going to be yeah, missing. Yeah. Uh, Ted, you've been very patient in talking about the presidential race today, but one of the reasons I was really interested in 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 hearing from you today, aside from your observations about the coronavirus that we've been talking so much about, how we're going to handle our elections, is because you have been one of the most outspoken, uh, devoted uh, supporters of Bernie Sanders in Georgia. And uh, it does appear that his campaign is starting to wind down, that things are not going to go as well for him today. So first of all, you can certainly take issue with that if you'd like to. But I think maybe the question that a lot of people out there are going to be interested in is whether you believe that Sanders supporters, should this go Biden's way, are going to get in line and work on his behalf. So take any aspect of that and go with it, Ted. <laughs> no, I appreciate that, Bill. Uh, that, that is true. I have been a, an early Bernie Sanders endorser going back to 2016. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, he speaks to my generation, uh, the, you know, the, the largest voting block in America is the, the 18 to 35 year old voting block. And so I, I've got much love and admiration for uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And when I was watching the debate last night, I kind of had this little, you know, sort of warm feeling in my heart because it was almost kind of like watching two of your favorite uncles um, and you're in this very diverse big family. <laughs> And, you know, and they're kind of, you know, arguing uh, in a, I don't know, a diner about politics. And but there's, you know, it's clear that both of them have respect for each other. I think that's sort of uh, one of the side stories of that debate and this sort of this last, you know, kind of round of the, the primary is that, you know, Bernie and Joe are, you know, are friends and they work together. Um, but, you know, the, the, the big issue, I think, that Senator Sanders brought up last night um, are the issues that he's running on. And in a lot of ways, Bernie Sanders has won the Democratic primary. Um, when you talk about the issues that are now being embraced by Joe and then for that, the other, you know, sort of center, center left candidates, you know, we are talking about expanding, um, you know, health care access, uh, expanding uh, public college and uh, tuition education, uh, stopping the discrimination of LGBTQ individuals, um, you know, supporting undocumented immigrants, you know, uh, and taking action on climates, which I think is probably the biggest generational difference. And yeah, you can definitely talk about the differences in the scale of Bernie's 
a Green New Deal versus Biden's uh, climate plan. But the reality is that both are saying that we need to move to 100 percent clean energy um, as, an, as an economy. And four years ago, that would yeah. uh, just not even be on the table. Um, but now it is. So, and that's, that's movements that we're taking that we're taking in, in our society. So, so, Tia, I, I, I want to get to a big headline, which is Joe Biden uh, uh, announcing last night that he was going to definitely name a woman to be his running mate. But, but just very, very quickly, um, the points that Ted just made are interesting because whether Bernie Sanders in the long run is the perfect messenger, the perfect symbol for that progressive youth vote that's moving forward, that's a very important uh, now movement that will continue to grow. And whether it's this election or one down the road, I think we're going to see more and more. I think Ted makes a point that progressives are increasingly very important to the Democratic Party, right? Yeah. And I do think, you know, even if you look at some of the things Joe Biden is saying, he's starting to uh, indicate that he's willing to embrace some of those ideas. He started talking about making college free for people from families who make, you know, up to, I think, 125000 making public college free. So he is starting to incorporate. Um, I do think the progressive movement is something that demands to be heard. And as we saw with the gains in the U.S. House, that um, those candidates resonate in the right district with the right candidate, particularly um, yeah. compared to, you know, some of those old guards that is considered out of touch. But I also think we can't over right, me, talk. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was saying we can't overestimate. No, I'm their sorry. I don't right mean now. to. I apologize for cutting you off, but I don't want the show to end before we talk about Biden. Ti, first you, and then Jim, committing to name a woman to be his running mate. That's a that was the biggest new headline that came out of the debate. I do think it was the biggest headline. I I think it was what we all knew to be the case, but the fact that he's willing to. Say it so strongly speaks volumes about him trying to make an impact. Yeah, yeah. And, Jim, why and, don't you and, weigh in before we run out of time? Uh, okay, uh, uh, we, we should also note that Bert, Bernie Sanders said that should he be the nominee, in all likelihood, put that in quotes, he would go the same route. Uh, of what I've been hearing among Georgia Democrats is actually, you know, Amy Klobuchar is probably uh, the, the the most likely pick at this point uh, because of the mid just the the Midwestern uh, states are go- going to be so important. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean there there certainly certainly Stacey Abrams has made it clear that she would be delighted to be the choice. Um, but geographically, you might be right, Jim, and I'll let you finish this off because we've got one minute to go. Geographically speaking, the Midwest still remains more important, Wisconsin, Michigan, those states, than Georgia in this cycle, right? Right. But it's it's look, it's going to be a debate. I mean, this is kind of uh, Stacey Abrams re, uh, represents the assertion, the, the, the kind of the, the assertion, the rise of, of uh, black women voters who are the anchor of the Democratic right. Party. That's the other point that's important. Ted, you've got about 10 seconds, and then we got to go. Yeah, I, Real I'm quick. 100% in, fa- 100% in favor of Stacey Abrams being picked as the VP nominee, and that's what we should be moving towards. And she, thank you for that. She's certainly in the running. Uh, that's it. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you again uh, tomorrow for a new Political Rewind.